to The Word is Resistance. This is the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about preaching the Word of God in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. These are the times in which we're living today. My name is Will Green, and this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. Surge, S-U-R-J, stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. So we're asking, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance and in showing up for liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy who are a part of Christian traditions that read the Bible and reflect on it. The point isn't you have to call yourself a Christian. Uh, The point is we're talking about the Bible, the Christian Bible. And we're bringing our commitments to fight white supremacy and live anti-racist lives into direct engagement with the lectionary. So we welcome your feedback, and we especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. To introduce myself a little more, my name is Will Green, and I'm a United Methodist pastor who lives on land that was inhabited by Pentecook people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white, cisgender, gay man, pronouns he, him, his, who serves a congregation in so-called Andover, Massachusetts. In addition to ministry in my church setting, I'm also involved in the work of prison abolition. I believe in a world without prisons. In this episode, I'm going to be looking at the gospel reading for the second Sunday in Advent for Sunday, December 9th, 2018. I'm talking about the first seven verses of the third chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. This is the introduction to the ministry of John the Baptist as an adult. It's a familiar passage that connects John the Baptist to a very famous quotation from the prophet Isaiah. But I'm not going to talk about that part, the famous quotation, at all. Instead, I have three points I want to make. The first point is about context. Preaching has context. Any situation in which the word of God comes is shaped in large part by some institutions and individuals we can name and we should be aware of, the context. The second point I want to make is about viewing John the Baptist as a stereotypical prophet who fits a familiar mold. And my third and final point has to do with forming community around shared values. So three points, something about context, something about a stereotype we have about prophets, and something about forming community. Now my second and third points, uh, I'm going to get to these by reading against the story, if you will. By this I mean, I'm going to make an observation about something I think you'll notice about the reading, how we normally think of John, something fairly obvious, And then then I'm going to say, let's do the exact opposite. In other words, after noting something in the reading, I'm going to say, now that we see that, let's not do that. In fact, let's go in the other direction. This is what I mean by reading against the story. Why would I argue that we should do the opposite of what we find in the Bible? Well, in general, I think it's good for white people to learn resistance and and learn how to flex our nonconformity muscles. I'm not talking about uh, this for the sake of individuality or self-expression, but I'm talking about breaking free and getting away from our socialization, from the expectations 
and molds that we have been born into. Of course, resisting white supremacy uh, is an act of, of resistance, of flexing our nonconformity muscles, if you will. It's good for white people to rid ourselves of this idea that we should conform to expectations. Reading scripture doesn't have to be about doesn't have to be about identifying heroes or role models and then just trying to be just like them. It's okay to observe something in scripture and to respond by saying, no, I'm not going to accept that pattern just because it's in front of me. Resisting white supremacy takes creativity. It takes flexibility and freedom. And white people in general would do well to get over wanting to be the way that we think heroes are supposed to be. Sometimes it's good to not just imitate our heroes, but instead to try to learn from our own reactions and reflections on a story. So I'm not going to read this passage by saying, you know, John the Baptist was really good, so we should all try to be just like John the Baptist. Also, to be clear, I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about John the Baptist. I'm not going to try to make John the Baptist into some sort of a villain or say he was a white supremacist or say we should distance ourselves from him in any way. This isn't an either or thing. Do you get it? Instead, I'm just going to note some characteristics of John the Baptist and then say, uh, we don't need to limit ourselves to fitting into uh, this mold presented in this reading. So already in this introduction, I'm saying this sort of a interpretive move, reading against the story, it's a good thing for white people because it gets us out of binary judgmental thinking that says, you know, there are, there are good people we want to be just like, and then there are bad people who we should condemn and avoid associating with. Not so. No, people are complicated. Even biblical characters are complicated, and uh, we, can, we can be complicated too. So we can learn from and with John the Baptist without either saying, oh, we want to be just like him, and also without saying, oh, we hate him and everything he does. So that's enough about reading against the story a little, but I just wanted to put that out there at the beginning. One last thing, uh, importantly, before I read the passage. All of our podcasts, all of our uh, The Word is Resistance podcasters have agreed that in Advent, we are focusing on immigration, justice for migrants, immigration as a human right. All people should be free to move, to cross borders, to not be limited by the colonial restrictions created by nationalism and global capitalism and imperialism and the ge geographic violence of white supremacy. So, Advent and immigration. Advent and immigration. What a perfect pair for this season, this season of waiting for the arrival, the approaching, the coming, the crossing over, if you will, of God. Advent is a good time to reflect on immigration. It's a good time for us to celebrate that salvation happens through an act of immigration, if you will, a movement across boundaries, when God shows up in a new place by coming towards us from someplace else. Do you get it? Our defenses, our fears, our hesitations and uncertainty cannot keep back the one who is now drawing near. So our focus at the word is resistance is advent and immigration. It's holy it is divine, it is good. So, here we go.
Gospel according to Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to include uh, verse 7, even though the lectionary selection technically ends at verse 6. Don't tell anyone. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And that's where I'll end the reading. So, my first point about context. It's impossible to read or hear this passage and not feel overwhelmed by how it opens with so much context, all those rulers and officials and their titles and naming all the land over which they claim dominion. Isn't that a bit much? Isn't it a lot to go through the emperor, the governor, the ruler, the ruler's brother, the ruler's other brother, both of the people serving in the high priesthood? It's so many names and titles and so many lists. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of broadcast news on election night when the reporters are just jumping all over the map, announcing all that's happening. They say who's coming into office and who's leaving power and where all this is happening. I can never keep up. You know, it's like, uh, in this race, it's this person, and that race, it's that person. Now we're going to move over here on the map, and now we're going to go over there on the map. And don't forget about the office we mentioned earlier. Now we're going to go back with an updated correction to something we said before. It's like this fire hose of information. You almost can't take it all in. I kind of feel that way about television and radio in general. It's just hard to follow. But on election night especially, with this rapid-fire overdose of information, even more so, it doesn't just happen on election night. It also happens at the beginning of the third chapter of Luke. T TMI! Too much information. So much information. So many names. So much going on. But here's the thing. Here's my first point. The political context is important for preaching the word of God. Political context is important for preaching the word of God. The regime that is in power, the alliances that are at work, the ideologies that are seen as legitimate, the legacies that are understood to be important. These things matter for what we preach, for how we preach and why we are preaching. When you proclaim the word of God, Context matters. The emperor, the governor, and all the other people on down, they, they shape the world. They create obstacles to justice. They impact how real lives are lived. Now, this is a really obvious point. 
that reality matters, but it's lost on so many preachers and in so many sermons. It seems as if the huge majority of sermons out there try to be generic enough so that you could preach them under any emperor or in any region. And that's a problem. Political context matters, and it should shape how the word of God is proclaimed. As you read this gospel passage on Sunday morning, some people might be thinking, does it really matter who the ruler of Trachonitis was, or however you say it? Well, yes, it does. Because so-called leaders and governments are unfortunately powerful forces that impact the lives of real people. And the word that gets preached must be relevant and responsive to and contextual for the world in which it's proclaimed. Now, moving to our day, a lot of people have said that the only good thing to come out of the elections of November 2016 is, that's when Trump was elected, it now seems that a lot more people are aware of how much our lives are impacted by the powerful. People are waking up, so to speak, to context, or so it's been said. Now, a lot of what people are waking up to, obviously, should have been evident long before November 2016. Fine. But nonetheless, it seems people are waking up to the truth that our context impacts what the Word of God has to say to us. Now, let me do a little, a little experiment here. Imagine a sermon that begins like this. Imagine someone preaching the Word of God today and it beginning with these words. This is a little parody of the third chapter of Luke. Here we go. In the last month of the second year of the first term of the presidency of Donald J. Trump, when Mike Pence was vice president, when Justice Brett Kavanaugh had been confirmed by the Senate and sworn into the Supreme Court, and when Gina Haspel ran the CIA and Jared Kushner had just been appointed special envoy in charge of American innovation. Okay, do you want me to keep going? Do you get it? Doesn't that set a tone and give content and give context? You know, as we hear these words, imagine a sermon beginning this way. I think, yikes, a sermon that begins by naming these names? Woo, this is going to be real. This is going to be relevant. This is going to be contextual. This is going to resonate with uh, what's going on today. You know, then again, you might hear these names and you might think, you know, the names of the people in power change, but little else ever does. We've, we've had people like this in power since the days of the third chapter of Luke, and long before. So I'm not saying that we have to mention half the Trump administration by name in every sermon we preach, but they, and others like them, tragically do impact the lives of millions. And in this sense, they should influence what we have to say as we proclaim the word of God. Now in Luke, many of the people mentioned in this passage at the beginning of the third chapter, they don't really come up again once more in the entire book. Well, most of them don't, but they were in the air, so to speak. They were part of the context of the ministry of John the Baptist and, of course, the ministry of Jesus. We need to realize what forces are at work in our world 
Just like uh, when we try to analyze and understand the social situation behind a biblical text. In a way, this is obviously sort of what this whole podcast, the word, of resist, the word is resistance, is all about. I'm talking about being aware of the forces that are shaping our world. Or as I said in uh, the introduction, preaching the word of God in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. These are the times in which we're living today. Context. But notice this in the Luke reading. Despite all of these titles and names and important people who make up this litany, notice where God's word comes from. Where does God's word come? Does God's word come to the emperor? No. Does it come to the governor? No. To the ruler, the ruler's brother, the high priest? No, no, no. If you remember, it says that the word of God came to John son of Zechariah, where? In the wilderness. I want to note this tension between all the powerful big shots who set the political context and set agendas and have time periods named after them. There's this tension between them and the place where the word of God is spoken. God's word comes to John in the wilderness. Context matters, But the dominant story of power does not tell God's story. God's story comes from, in this passage, the wilderness. Do you see it? Yes, the the emperor and his crew impact the world significantly, but they don't get to control the word of God. So, reflect on that. Play with that. That's the first point. Let me move to my, my second point where, as I said, I'm going to read against the story in some way, suggest something different than what we might obviously observe in the story. Here's how I want to say this. Although God's word came to John in the wilderness, I want to trouble this idea, to question or problematize the idea that being faithful to God, being a prophet, means that you always need to be a lone voice calling out in the wilderness. There is this idea out there, there's this idea out there that it's always good, it's always noble, it's always ideal to be one person out there all on your own, speaking up, even crying out against the powers that be from your principled, pious position in the wilderness. Do you recognize this unhelpful stereotype of what it means uh, to be a prophet? White people love this idea of the lone voice crying out in the wilderness. We eat this idea up uh, that if we're really rooted in what is right, then we are going to find ourselves being a lone voice, a lone wolf who's not afraid to stand all alone and cry out the truth in isolated loneliness from the wilderness. Okay, to that stereotypical idea of the prophet, I say... Boo! No! Don't do it! Don't buy it! Don't idolize this! I'm reading against the imagery from the passage. Do not set out to be a voice in the wilderness. Instead, know your context and contextualize your ministry. Don't just rail and shout and act like either the force of your rhetoric and analysis and truth alone is enough. It isn't. You aren't that good with words. Instead of being a lone voice in the wilderness, you need to connect 
to collaborate, to form relationships, to learn with others, to build power, to nurture trust, to grow. I think white people in social justice ministry would do well to spend way more time and resources on this, these sorts of goals rather than telling ourselves that we need to be a lone voice in the wilderness. Do you get it? Just because it uses that imagery in Luke 3 to describe John the Baptist does not mean that we should fetishize this profile of a lone voice in the wilderness as something that's always going to be helpful in seeking justice. Don't be a voice in the wilderness. Connect. Collaborate. Organize. Mobilize. Work together. Now, I know it's lonely sometimes. Yes, of course. Sometimes it might feel like you're in the wilderness, but don't put that up on a pedestal as what you're trying to attain or who you're supposed to be. Now, I have a a story uh, from uh, me (laughs) that illustrates this. Uh, All this year, this idea of not being a lone voice in the wilderness, but instead connecting, collaborating, organizing, mobilizing, working together. Here's my story. Uh, All this year, 2018, I've been participating in Jericho Walks. I've mentioned this a few times in the podcast Jericho walks around the ice building about 20 minutes from my church. A Jericho walk. It's a silent, prayerful march around an ice facility that calls on, obviously calls on the power of the story of the Battle of Jericho from the book of Joshua. And Jericho walks, this format, this language, something I learned about in just January of this year through the New Sanctuary Coalition of New York. And Again, I've talked about this in a few times over podcasts. It's been a very important part of my life uh, this year. So in April, um, after having done a Jericho walk down in uh, Manhattan, in April we brought Jericho walks up here to Massachusetts, and they took off right away. I shared the invitation with organizers who are working in all sorts of cool uh, support work, uh, supporting people, uh, accompanying people facing immigration processes through ICE. And then it really took off when some clergy in the town uh, where the ice building is, they claimed this project as their own. Yeah, just like in the introduction to the gospel reading, they claimed their context. They knew their context. Uh, They did not see themselves as lone voices in the wilderness. They worked together. Okay, but here's the story. Uh, (laughs) Here's what I really wanted to say. Uh, This last week, we had an interesting experience. Normally at Jericho Walks, we have about 100 people which is a great crowd. I'm thrilled with the turnout. And what we do is we walk around the neighborhood silently, uh, you know, two by two in rows, carrying our signs. We march silently in the neighborhood where the ice building is located. It's in this little business park with a whole bunch of businesses. And what we do, the hundred or so of us, is we walk up and down the street a few times. And then our last lap is around the ice building, circling the ice building just once. Here's what we did last week, though. Instead of having a Jericho walk with 100 people, just a few of us uh, went down to the, the business park where ice is located. We got together. I think there were seven of us. And we walked the path around the neighborhood we normally walk for Jericho walks. But of, instead of being in silent prayer, we went into all of the area businesses that we normally march past, and we introduced ourselves. Revolutionary, right? We went into the bank, the coffee shop, three different restaurants, a a salon, a hotel, 
instead of positioning ourselves as noble activists who proclaim our message on our own, we said, hey, let's meet people. Let's introduce ourselves, uh, approach new people, and try to form some relationships right here in this uh, neighborhood. It went so well. People in the businesses were so happy to meet us and learn about uh, these walks that they've been seeing each month uh, you know, since April, we had made little flyers and, uh, we told uh, the people and the businesses about, uh, the date of our next Jericho walk and we had pretty short, um, but significant conversations with the people we met. One of the things we just asked as we went into these businesses, very simply, is we said, do you know that ice is located right here in your neighborhood? You know, we pointed at that building right there. Did you know that's ice? Some people knew others didn't. It was fascinating. Some people said, oh, yeah, we see you march every month and we love it and we're, we're, we're with you. Uh, one person said that it was like his second day on the job in the neighborhood and <laughs> he had no context for what we were talking about, but he was really happy uh, to learn and to meet us. Almost all the people we met were really eager to express their support and appreciation, which was great. One person, I'll say, was wicked nervous, uh, but that's okay. Who knows what the dynamics are in her workplace? One person we talked to said something really obvious. She said that at a, a former workplace, another restaurant in another state where she used to work, ICE had raided her job, sadly. Several of her friends from work were captured and taken away. So she wanted to talk with us, and she wanted numbers to call in case that happens again. She wanted to connect. It had never occurred to me that, of course, the people working in these restaurants have experienced trauma from ICE, too, whether they're immigrants or not. And, of course, the, the people must be terrified to be working so close to the ICE offices. So, I'm not saying that our Jericho walks are, are self-righteous at all. They're not. But the image we have of John the Baptist is an extremist who shocks people. We picture him all on his own, some fanatic out there on the edge doing his thing. That's fine. There's room for extremists who shock people, but we also need to connect. My point here is not to condemn people who uh, engage in, in drastic, dramatic actions or tactics. I think radical stuff is awesome and important and fantastic. Uh, what I'm trying to do is warn us against falling into the trap of thinking that only the most extreme and shocking tactics are called for or appropriate. I have to say, in my experience, people who actually do the, the drastic, dramatic, extreme stuff, um, they do not say that that's all that's needed. More often, it's people who aren't doing anything at all who buy into this caricature of a prophet and think it's the only game in town. Do you get it? People sometimes use this image of the heroic eccentric as an excuse for not getting involved. I'm raising this point because I worry that Nervous white people might hear the reading about John the Baptist on the second Sunday of Advent, and they might think, oh, see, I could never do that. I'm no prophet. I, I can't be involved in creating change. I'm not brave enough to stand all alone in the wilderness. So this, this takes me to my third and final point, and I'm going to say it <laughs> briefly. In the story, John the Baptist doesn't just call out from the wilderness. He also calls people names. He shouts at the crowd who comes to him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? This is why I included the seventh verse. John the Baptist 
antagonizes people in the reading. He does. The third point is, don't antagonize people for the sake of antagonizing people or because that's what you think prophetic ministry is. Instead, call people in and build community. Thinking back to that story about the Jericho walks again and introducing ourselves. Yeah, there is a time and place for confrontation. Sometimes I confront people uh, dramatically in the right time and place. You know, just a few weeks ago, actually, I was involved in a dramatic, disruptive action that confronted former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I, I get confrontation. But my third point is that in addition to that sort of thing, we also must build community. We have to call people in. We have to make friends the right time and place with the right people. We have to. We can confront when the time is right people who need to be confronted. But don't read this gospel passage and think, uh, yeah, it's all about being a badass. I'm going to go off on everybody I can. No, I'm reading against that. Build community. Invite people in. Marching is well and good, but also find time to walk the protest route and have conversations and learn from people. It's important. It's part of the work. Everybody is not a snake or an enemy or a part of a brood of vipers. You can have actions and analysis that condemn some people, but that's not all that we have to do. We would also do well, especially as white people, to not buy into this idea that the only work we have to do is condemn. You know, this is bad. Those people are bad. We also need to build. We need to grow. We need to create. So again, that's why I want to include Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 7. So I could say, don't do that. If you're called to do radical, confrontational, brave work, that's awesome when the time is right. Sometimes that's where I am. But we need to learn how to bring people along, you know, without worshiping centrism or being a moderate. It's not one or the other. Sometimes, again, we walk the route of our protest map and we, we educate, we inform, we listen. So my last two points here really go together. They may even be one point, but it's good to get away from the stereotype of the edgy prophet in the wilderness who tells people off. We need to move beyond that and break that mold of what it means to be prophetic. And I'm, again, I'm not going to criticize people who are to the left of me at all. I'm saying this mold is an obstacle that keeps people from, from getting involved because it's so easy to read about, for example, John the Baptist and just think, Oh yeah, that's all that a prophet is. I could never do that, so I don't have to do anything. Not so. We can understand our context and call people in. podcast, I'm supposed to try to point towards some actions that listeners can take. Now, I mentioned Jericho Walks and the work of the New Sanctuary Coalition. Do you know about their the New Sanctuary Coalition's Sanctuary Caravan program? Check out hashtag Sanctuary Caravan and hashtag 40 Days and 40 Nights to learn about and support uh, activists who are on the border 
across the border working to help people in the caravan get asylum. Sanctuary Caravan. It's a project you should support and learn about, amplify, maybe even join. Maybe you can even get involved at that level to go there and be a part of it. So that's one thing. Secondly, and this has to do with internal personal work using the imagery of, of John the Baptist, I want to say that uh, when we're getting involved and being committed to anti-racist work, it can feel like we're in the wilderness, but we're not. We're in a context. We may not like the context, but we're in a context. And for people like me, our context, in a way, if you will, is whiteness. Being white is our context. Now, here's a question. This is a spiritual question, an internal question for you to reflect on, something I've been talking about with friends lately in terms of immigration and whiteness and justice. The question is this. What would it mean to cross the border of whiteness? To cross the border of whiteness. Crossing a border involves risks, involves risk. You know, you'd, you'd only do it for a reason, for a purpose. By crossing a border, you may be opening yourself up to harm or to violence, but it's important. It's something that you do because you have to or you want to or it's necessary or the right thing to do. What would it mean to cross the border of whiteness? Is that a journey you can take? Now, I'm not talking about not being white anymore, but I'm talking about crossing the border as a way of resisting white supremacy. This is just a question I'm, I'm offering to you. Uh, what would it mean to cross the border of whiteness? You might want to think about that or reflect on it or I don't know what. And uh, finally, because this is the kind of person I am, I want to recommend some books. Uh, if what I said about not being a hero resonated with you, or if it didn't resonate with you, but you want to figure out what I'm talking about, I want to suggest the book uh, that I sometimes do suggest, No More Heroes by Jordan Flaherty. It's published by AK Press, 2016. Full title of this book is No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality. You know, of course, John the Baptist is a hero of mine. Fine, I love reading about John the Baptist and learning about him, talking about him, singing about him, being inspired by him. But what does it mean for there to be a grassroots challenge to the savior mentality and proclaim no more heroes? I think this podcast episode is sort of an answer to that question. And if, if you'd like to think more about it, you might want to make this book a, a conversation partner. Second book related to that topic, another book I want to call your attention to, uh, is titled Feminist Accountability, Disrupting Violence and Transforming Power. It's by Anne Russo, published by NYU Press. And the year of publication for this book is 2019. It's from the future. I love it. Uh, lots of wonderful things about this book. I'll just say, say the title one more time. Feminist Accountability, Disrupting Violence and Transforming Power. I think if you get into it, you'll see very clearly how some of the essays are about, um, well, let me say, for example, the last chapter is titled Resisting the Savior Complex, um, but certainly the themes that I've been reflecting on in this episode uh, are very present in this book. So I, I call your attention to these two books. There's that question for you to reflect on about crossing the border of whiteness. And then Sanctuary Caravan. Sanctuary Caravan part of the New Sanctuary Coalition New York. All good stuff. Check it out.
Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search the word is resistance. You can interact with us there, and transcripts are available on our website. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014. It's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Uh-huh.